Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Please welcome Derek Kurzenabe. Derek is a longtime member of VCDC, small group leader, Thanks, servant, so. good friend, and uh, I love him. So and glad welcome. to be here. Yes. So uh, before I get started, I just want to open in a quick prayer. Um, please join me. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we just pray that you would breathe on this teaching here tonight, Lord. Um, I pray that this would... Um, be, these would be your words, not mine. I thank you uh, that I feel like you placed this topic on my heart. Um, I think it is for the men of this church today. Um, I just ask, Lord, that the words I share, they would not be informational, but instead would be transformational. Lord, let them see, seek, seep deep into uh, the men of VCDC. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All right, so let me uh, just quickly introduce myself. Uh, as Bill said, I'm Derek Kersnabe. I've been attending VCDC since 2008 um, when uh, my wife Vicki and my twin daughters Emma and Maya and myself moved here from California. Uh, we came here, tried out a few churches, but uh, really pretty much from the get-go felt like VCDC was home for us. Um, it just felt like a comfortable place. It felt like home. I've been coming here, uh, coming here ever since. Um, in my professional life, I actually work for a technology company, working with colleges and universities, really just trying to make them more effective in the way that they run their operations. Um, in that capacity, I've been asked, I have no direct reports, I don't manage people, I have no desire to manage people. Um, but in that capacity, I end up interviewing people. They ask me to kind of speak to candidates that are potentially coming in, that are gonna be part of the team, and, and ask them, you know, figure out are they really good candidates, will they fit? And mostly what my job is, is to see are, are they in fact going to run their business appropriately? Do they have the skills? Are they gonna fit in? Do they have what it takes to be successful, right? So I, I try and tell them what has worked for me and see if they agree that they have those characteristics. And um, you know what I found myself doing, I had a period of time, I was doing about three or four interviews every week. We've got a lot of turnover, we're hiring a bunch, and they were asking me to do a bunch of these. So I'm in the process of doing these interviews, and um, I'm talking, in the interview process, I'm asking these folks, you know, how would you be the CEO of your territory? This is gonna be your business. How would you run it? Tell me about leaders that you've interacted with and their qualities. What was it about what they did that you would like to replicate? What would you bring to these jobs? So I've been doing that for about three or four weeks, and all of a sudden Bill approaches me and says, hey, I'm thinking about doing this men's conference. Would you be willing to speak? And at that point in time, literally I went to, uh-uh. Everything else he was saying after that was just noise, right? I was ignoring it completely. I had no desire. So, um, but I asked him, I said, so Bill, what are some of the topics? Tell me, tell me what some of the topics are that you would, you know, you want me to choose from something? Give me some sense. And quite frankly, he sounded like one of the adults from Peanuts, right? All I heard was wah, 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 wah. I didn't want to have anything to do with this at all, right? But in bullet number two, in topic number two, he mentioned leadership. It's the only word I heard out of the list of 10 that he was talking about, right? 
And I went, okay, so I heard that one. I was ignoring all the rest. I probably should pay a little attention. So I prayed about it um, and, and continued to pray about it, but wasn't really convinced I was supposed to be doing it. Eventually, I came around, and I felt like, okay, God put this on my heart. He clearly made it something I should be talking about, so I agreed to. Um, so there was also another theme that was kind of, uh, kind of reinforcing this, that I should be doing it. I'll get to that in a minute, um, but it's a phrase that kept on popping out to me, and it's going to play into some of the teaching we talk about here tonight. So I'm going to ask you to be a little interactive with me here for a couple minutes. So raise your hand, please, if you are a leader or feel like you're a leader to people around you. Just go ahead and lift your hand up. Okay? Got a good bunch of leaders in here. That's great to see. So let me go ahead and get to our first point. The first point is that we're all called to be leaders, every one of us. It doesn't matter how old we are, the job we have, our marital status, how mature we are spiritually, our gender, our ethnicity, none of that matters. We are all called to be leaders. So what does it mean to be a leader? Leadership is the ability of an individual to lead, influence, or guide other individuals. So again, I'm gonna look for your input here. I want you to just throw out some words. If you think about leadership and leaders, what are words that you would use to describe good leaders and leadership? Anybody? Vision? Well, I've heard power, maybe? Empowered. Ability to listen. Strong, setting an example, really good. Character, creativity. No regrets, being bold. I'm sorry, I missed that one. Integrity. All of these are really, really great words and great traits of good leaders, right? So there's some common roles for those of you that maybe didn't raise your hand immediately and say, I'm a leader. You're in relationships, you're in roles that whether you know it or not, you're a leader, right? So maybe you're a father, a spouse, a friend, a coworker, teacher, classmate, neighbor, small group member, all of these, a shopper at the grocery store. You're standing in the front row during worship. There are people behind you that see what you're doing. You're leading. You are able to ex exert influence over those that are watching you. The Bible is absolutely filled with descriptions of good leaders in leading. I mean, there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples. I asked Bill, he wouldn't give me the 18 hours I needed to get through that list, sorry. Um, but I'm gonna highlight a handful of Bible verses and traits that I think are really important, and you folks have all named some of them already. The first one, good leaders are servants first. This, is, uh, this comes to us from Matthew. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. In Philippians, we see that good leaders are humble. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Leading is also an action word. Good leaders lead by example. In 1 Thessalonians, we have, having so fond an affection for you, 
we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Another, uh, another verse in 2 Timothy refers to good leaders as being intentional teachers. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then finally, and probably most importantly, we are commanded to be leaders for God's mission. Matthew 28 reads, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Before Vicki and I moved here from California, we went to a community church, um, and the pastor there would regularly say, more is caught than taught. You're leading by what you're doing, the example you're setting, those things you're saying, those words you're using, those things you're doing are setting an example for others. So it's really important that we're aware we're all leaders and more is caught than taught. So recently, oh man, this was painful. I went on my first business trip in 14 months, and uh, it was really painful. Uh, but I made a trip down to the state of Alabama and was meeting with the Department of Education down there, and the head of their um, education department basically reports directly to the governor, runs the whole state, runs the program. Very, very senior person. Could very easily say, I want this amount of money, this is what I'm gonna do with it, this is what we're gonna do with it, governor, go ahead and stamp, you know, rubber stamp this, and it would happen, right? He's very powerful, very senior. But instead, what this gentleman does is he invites in every different department in the state, people from K through 12, people through, from the community college system, people from the college and university four-year system, invites them all together, the folks that award financial aid and give out state grants, as well as the governor's office. He has them all come together. He brings them into a room. He's got his agenda. He knows what he wants to get done. What he's trying to do is essentially get more high school students into college, so increase the number that actually go on to college, and decrease the amount of money that they, they spend on it, actually get more, more scholarships for them, knocking down that burden in a state where 50% of the high school graduates are living in poverty. So take away the poverty aspect, increase the number of students that attend school, and actually potentially change the whole economic value in the state by bringing new business in. Instead of just saying this is what we're gonna do, he brings all these people together. We have this meeting, he's, he's very empathetic, he's asking people what their opinions are, what's, what works for the community college, how is that different than the universities, how much money can we get out of the state, extra money from the financial aid awards. He's bringing everybody into the conversation, even though he could have just said, this is what we're going to do. He doesn't do that. So we get done with this meeting and he's wrapping it up and he says, you know, he basically has everybody in the room, and you know, this is a room filled with 30, 40 people, all basically his biggest supporters, supporters his cheerleaders. They were behind him. They were behind him and his agenda. He had thought about everybody, how it affected them, 
He came very well educated on the problems and the solutions and educated those that were in the room about why they were gonna do what they were gonna do. Everyone left completely convinced it was the right thing to do, but not before I observed one other thing. This meeting ends, people get up and there's bottles of water and food and you know, people kick their chairs back away from the, the boardroom table. He quietly, without any fuss, walks around without his executive admin being called. He could have just you know, ran down the hall and said, hey, could you come clean this up? Walked around cleaning up every bit of that room. He was a servant as well. He was humble. This is a senior guy in the state. He could easily just say, this is what I'm going to do, and hey, clean this stuff up. He didn't do that. He did it himself. That's, that, just watching him, again, just resonated with me and reinforced, I need to be talking about leadership. This is what a leader is. And we are all leaders. His simple, humble, thoughtful actions at the end of that meeting just really touched, touched a chord in my heart. So would we all agree that all of us, in fact, are leaders to somebody around us? Yeah? All right. So um, as I mentioned in the introduction, there was this other thought that was bubbling around in my puny little brain. Um, and, and it was a phrase, I couldn't shake it. I didn't know where it came from, and I hadn't seen it or heard it anywhere, it just popped up, right? And it was happening all in the same time when Bill was asking me to, to uh, think about speaking. Um, and that phrase is, we cannot be good leaders unless we are first good followers, right? It's actually originally attributed to Aristotle or somebody like that. I don't know where it came up or how it came to me at that point in time, but it just struck a chord. It's like, I'm thinking about leadership, but first, there's a precursor, there's a prereq. You have to be a good follower first. So, again, help me out. What do you think it means? I need some input from you. What are signs of a good follower? Listener. What else? Dedication. Humility. Obedience is a great one. Commitment. I'm sorry? Yeah. Teamwork. Absolutely. All really, really good words. I agree. So what does the Bible tell us about being a follower? Um, the Bible is actually filled with examples of good followers and even followers of followers. But who were some of the MVFs? That's most valuable follower for you guys. I just wanted to make sure you were aware in the Bible. Um, so Moses followed Jethro, and Jethro follow, or, and jo Joshua followed Moses. Joshua was such a good follower, he followed Moses for like 40 years or something like that, wandering around the desert, and he just kept following him, right? Just, this is a good follower. Samuel followed Eli, and King David followed Samuel. Elisha followed Elijah. The 12 disciples followed Jesus. Titus and Timothy followed Paul. And Jesus himself was the ultimate follower, only acting on the direction and guidance of God his Father in heaven. There are many references in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus invites people to come follow me. 
Most frequently, these words were spoken to people Jesus was inviting to actually be his, be his disciples. But on a couple of occasions, um, you know, he, he invited people to take up their cross and follow him. He invited them into carrying the burdens that would come along with being a follower of Christ, right? He also used the words, um, come follow me, uh, when he was speaking with the rich young ruler, when he was inviting him to be a follower, but in fact, the rich young ruler was not able to give up all the wealth he had accumulated and actually follow Jesus. But again, come follow me. Follow me was an important part of becoming a disciple, becoming a, a follower of a rabbi in Jesus' time. Let's go ahead and look at a couple of Bible verses that talk about being good followers. So in Philippians 4.9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And then in Hebrews, we see, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. I don't know if everyone was here or watched online, but a couple weeks ago, Michael, during Michael's sermon in our current series, um, he was sharing how he had purchased a print of Rembrandt's painting, The Prodigal Son. He'd been at an event and heard a speaker talk about, um, talk about this print and the story, and the speaker made the comment, and I'm quoting Michael, quoting the speaker, to the extent that you have become the son, you will now be able to turn to others and be the father. This sums up really well the natural cycle of being a good follower first and then being able to be a good leader. I'm gonna go back and talk a little bit about Jesus' time and what it was like to be in school, to be a young man, right? Or you know, be a child in Galilee in the first century. Um, Schools were led by a rabbi, the teaching, and so at four or five, a child would begin going to the school where they would begin learning the Torah. It was about writing it down and learning it. This is elementary school. Um, by the time the kids would finish elementary school, they would essentially have memorized the entire Torah, which is the five first books of the Bible. They would have basically had them memorized. They weren't that good at it, maybe, they didn't continue on, right? So those that were kind of top of the class got to continue into secondary school. Everyone else went on, they would go help with the family business, they'd learn the family trade. The top of the class went on to secondary school. Those students would continue their learning, memorizing the Torah, extending it to the prophets. But then they would also learn how to interpret the, the Bible themselves, to interpret the, what the rules and the laws were on their own, under the tutelage of their rabbi, but this was where they were kind of coming into their own. Again, they get to graduation, the top of the top, some of them go off to learn the family trade, the top of the top, continue on. Those, those that were considered the very few most outstanding students would seek permission to study with a famous rabbi, often leaving home to travel with him for a lengthy period of time, these students were called the Talmidim. In Hebrew, that's translated disciple. Sound familiar? There is much more to a Talmud than what you can, when you think about a run-of-the-mill student. 
A student wants to know what the teacher knows to get a grade, to complete the class, to get a degree. But a Talmud wants to be like the teacher, to become what the teacher is. That meant that students were passionately devoted to the rabbi and noted everything he did or said. Eventually, these students would become teachers on their own and would then pass on the lifestyle to their disciples. Any idea how the Talmidim would be accepted in the rabbi-disciple relationship? The rabbi would say, come, follow me. It's the same thing, right? The good leader asking the good follower into a relationship to continue that. This once again reinforces the natural cycle of being a good follower first before being able to be a good leader. Coming out of this concept of following really closely, following a rabbi, learning from them, there's an old Hebrew blessing that speaks to the need to be a good follower first. And it is, may you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. This, the disciples of the rabbi wanted to talk like the rabbi, think like the rabbi, and act like the rabbi. This required them to be near their rabbi constantly. The frequency of nearness is key to becoming the good follower. I'm going to say that again. The frequency of nearness is key to becoming a good follower. These disciples didn't let the rabbi go off on his own and come catch up to him in the next town. They wanted to be so close to him that they could hear everything he said, do what he did, and be covered by his dust, literally the dust from his sandals, kicking off of his shoes, covering them, was considered a blessing. All right, so everyone agree that we should be called to be, or that we're called to be good followers? Hmm? All right, so now let's get practical for a second. First, I think we need to determine who are we following, and, and should we be following? Right? Or is this the right person or people that we are following? Jesus should be the top of our list, obviously. But for this to happen, you really need to cultivate that frequency of nearness I just mentioned. There are a bunch of practical ways to do this. This isn't, this isn't you know, shocking news to anybody here. You know, spend time in your Bible, spend time in prayer, get in a small group, all real practical things. But you need to figure out what works for you. How do you create an environment where that frequency of nearness, right, happens more frequently than it is today. Secondly, who are you leading? I think it's really important to be able to identify somebody that we influence. Who is it that we're influencing? Think back to those common relationships you have, the father, son, spouse, classmate, small group, neighbor, coworker, teacher, or whatever it may be, know that you are in a spot of influence and leading. Everything you do, everything you say is creating an impact, creating an influential relationship. Be intentional about finding the person or people that you want to influence and that you want to invite into, essentially, that rabbi-disciple relationship. So to summarize the key points, we're all called to be leaders, 
We cannot be good leaders unless we're first good followers. We really need to assess who we're following and prioritize the frequency and nearness of this relationship. And finally, we need to be intentional about identifying our followers and being aware that we're passing along whatever we learned from our rabbi to our followers. Thank you very much. All right, so for our next speaker, we have Ben Hodge. And again, Ben has been around Vineyard for quite some time, and uh, I know he's also a small group leader, and I know he's very knowledgeable biblically, and uh, just an all-around good guy. So please welcome Ben Hodge for part two. Hey guys, thanks for coming out. It's nice to be with you. You know, it's been said many times throughout church history that the Bible is like a mirror. In it, we see both the good and the ugly in ourselves. Unfortunately, most people have seen themselves more through the eyes of the mirror on the wall than they have through the eyes of God, who speaks through the Holy Scriptures. When I uh, first learned about the theme of this conference, I laughed on two accounts. First, because I couldn't get Michael Jackson's hit song out of my head. Second, because I have probably spent more time looking in the mirror than most anyone else in this room. And I know for those of you who know me, you're probably thinking right now, but Ben, you hardly ever shave, and the only person I know who probably has a smaller wardrobe than you might be Danny Meyer. What in the world have you been doing all these years looking in the mirror? Well, I've spent most of my uh, career in uh, fitness and physical therapy, and I can tell you there's been pretty much no tool that's been, <clears throat> excuse me, has been more useful than a mirror. In it, we can see a proper exercise form, uh, body mechanics, we can uh, look at posture and alignment issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what's been the most interesting thing about all this is seeing people's reactions to the mirror on the wall. I never realized how many people are just quite terrified to see themselves in the mirror. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who obviously could probably look at themselves all day long. And obviously, both of these positions are distorted, for no one should just feel terrible about themselves based upon the appearance in the mirror, and no one should just feel awesome about themselves either based upon their good looks. So what I have learned throughout the years is that the mirror on the wall is crafty. And you might say to yourself, why is it crafty? It's because it only speaks partial truths. Just like the serpent in the garden. Oh yes, Adam and Eve's eyes were open, weren't they? But not the way they thought they were gonna be. And oh yes, the serpent was kinda right, you know, they didn't die, at least right then, but they would eventually. And how many other deaths did they die that day? And so what I have learned is, um, let's, uh, let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where it says the following. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. You know, ironically, for years, I thought I knew exactly what this verse meant. 
I thought Paul was showcasing his eschatology, his understanding of the things to come, saying, kind of use, using George, George Eldon Ladd's kingdom theology, we have the already right now, but we don't see many of the, the not yets to come of the kingdom. But it wasn't until a New Testament archaeological professor brought in a first century mirror to the classroom that I really felt like I knew what Paul was talking about. You know, you couldn't see quite as well in the first century's mirror as you can today. The reflection was dim. It wasn't like seeing someone face to face. In other words, if you missed a hair shaving that morning, you better have your wife point it out to you because you probably weren't going to see it in the first century mirror. Ironically, I think as our mirrors have gotten clearer, I think we have gotten blinder as a people. For we have bought into this notion that I will call empirical snobbery, where we think the only things that are really real in this world are the things that we can see, the physical, the material, the empirical. Um, but it shouldn't, be, uh, it shouldn't be surprising to us that what matters the most to the world matters least to God. Let's look at um, 1 Samuel 16:7 together. Uh, God says the following, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So although the mirror on the wall is crafty, the mirror through God's eyes speaks the truth and reveals the true person. I'm not sure what you guys see when you look in the mirror, but one thing I do know is that your opinion probably doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Do you know who opinion really matters in this lifetime? It's God's. And it's the only opinion that we should really care about. And it's the only opinion that is 100% accurate 100% of the time. So who does God say we are? Um, I would encourage you to follow along with the little blue card you picked up on your way in here. I am a child of God. I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. I am part of the true vine, a channel of Christ's life. I am Christ's friend. I am chosen and appointed by Christ to bear his fruit. I am a slave of righteousness. I am enslaved to God. I am a son of God. God is spiritually my father. I am a joint heir with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him. I am a temple, a dwelling place of God. His spirit dwells in me. I am united to the Lord and am one spirit with him. I am a member of Christ's body. I am a new creation. I am reconciled to God and am a minister of reconciliation. I am a son of God and one in Christ. I am an heir of God since I am a son of God. I am a saint. I am God's workmanship, his handiwork, born anew in Christ to do his work. I am a fellow citizen with the rest of God's family. I am a prisoner of Christ. I am righteous and holy. I am a citizen of heaven, seated in heaven right now. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am an expression of the life of Christ because he is my life. I am chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. I am a son of light and not of darkness. I am a holy partaker of a heavenly calling. I am a partaker of Christ. I share in his life. I am one of God's living stones being built up in Christ as a spiritual house. 
I am a member of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I am an alien and stranger to this world in which I temporarily live. I am an enemy of the devil. I am a child of God, and I will resemble Christ when he returns. I am born of God, and the evil one, the devil, cannot touch me. I am free forever from condemnation. I am firmly rooted in Christ and am now being built in him. What an awesome list. Now, I know that many of you are uh, familiar with this list taken from Neil T. Anderson's bestseller, Victory Over the Darkness, but that's kind of the point. I had a professor once that every morning before he would roll out of bed would read this list out loud to himself, and he was no lightweight disciple of Jesus. So what do you think would happen if we every day would remind ourselves from the word of God who God says we are? I think we might actually start to believe it and start to see ourselves more through the eyes of God and how he sees us. So if the, uh, if the mirror on the wall is crafty, what, what is the mirror of the world? What does the mirror of the world say about us? The mirror of the world says that we always need something other than Jesus, doesn't it? Whether it be a new car, a new house, a new career, more stuff. How about a new wife? There is literally no place the world will not go to stir up our discontentment and our belief that there is something else out there other than Jesus that is going to make us whole and complete and give us joy in this lifetime. I remember when J.T. Meyer was a pastor here, he used to say this little two-word phrase was his favorite from the Bible of all of them, but God. And it is a really cool little phrase that appears periodically throughout the Bible, usually in the context where all hope is lost, but God, showing God is all-sufficient, all-powerful. He can save the day in any, in any scenario. Um, I've listed, a, put up a few of these verses here so we can see them because they are awesome. So the first one is um, from 2 Corinthians 7, 6. For even when we came into Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every way, disputes without and fears within. But God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus. The next one says, The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and enabled him to win favor and to show wisdom when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. That's from Acts 7, 9, 10. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. Acts 10, 39 through 40. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. Straight to the grave they descend, and their form shall waste away. Sheol shall be their home, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Psalm 49, 15. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals. Genesis 8 through 1. Man, where would Noah be today without God? He'd probably still be floating around the ark with the animals. You know, I have thought about this, and I think that this continues to be one of the church's favorite little, little verses of the Bible, and also in the world's but in a slightly different tone. But God, but God, what do you mean you want me to be devoted to your church family? Have you seen my schedule? 
I have speed eating hot dog classes three days a week, and my kids are involved in 23 different sports leagues just this month. And I don't even like people. I like hot dogs, God. I like hot dogs. But God, what do you mean you want me to give generously to your kingdom to the poor? Have you seen the state of my pantry? We're down to two years worth of sanitizer and three years worth of toilet paper. And this phone I'm holding here is going on three and a half weeks old, and I don't even like it. The woman you gave me in the garden, she made me buy it. <laughs> How about on a more serious note? A more serious note. But God, you know what they did to me. How can you expect me to forgive them? No, no. But God, but God, yes, God knows. And that's why he had to die on the cross for me and for you and the entire world to put an end to the poison of unforgiveness. Right now, you're drinking the poison, hoping the other person will die, but it's killing you from the inside out, and God loves you too much to continue in that. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be free. But God, what do you expect? I have all these beautiful women who keep popping up on my phone, and I don't have any other outlets. No, no. But God, but God, God does understand. You're actually the one who doesn't understand, and you do not know what this stuff does to your soul. He loves you too much. He wants you to have your heart's desire, but not like this. Give it to the Lord. He's sufficient. He is powerful. He can break this off of you. God can do all things. No matter what the world says, God is sufficient. Jesus is always, en always enough. The mirror of the kingdom always reveals that Jesus is enough. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus says the following, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. At, to you as well. You know, this verse was such a life changer many years ago. You know, I found that what I was doing with my life is I was bringing my huge busy schedule and saying, now where can I fit Jesus into my schedule? I think there's a little crack, maybe on Tuesday I can slide him in. Like what a change it was when I said, you know what, I'm gonna push my busy schedule over here and I'm gonna center my life around God and say, God, how do you want me to live my life? And then pull that schedule back around me with God at the center. It changed everything. I had to let some things go of my schedule, but it just showed me how powerful God is and how awesome he is when we put him at the very center. So the last thing on this topic is, I, I believe if we really want to ever know ourselves better and who we really are, we have to really get to know God better because we're made in his image. We're made in his image. So finally, the mirror on the wall doesn't only say, the mirror on the wall is not only crafty, it also says that you are all alone. I mean, literally, when you look, on the, look in the mirror, you just see yourself. It looks like you're all alone, right? And I would have to say there's probably no time more in American history in this past year where Americans have felt more alone. I mean, seriously, if you think about it, we went all the way from American individualism all the way over here to stay by yourself. Other people are dangerous. It's safer to be by yourself. Well, I got to say, there's nothing safe about being by yourself. Actually, the... Uh, 
the early church fathers thought it was so dangerous to be by yourself for extended periods of time that when they would go out to solitude to pray for weeks on end, they would say that they had gone out to do battle with the devil himself. That's how convinced that they were that the devil would show his early face, or his ugly face when they were in solitude for weeks on end. You know, we just tend to be more vulnerable when we're by ourselves. And the enemy shows no mercy, and he usually strikes when we're at our lowest points. And the worst part of this is, is because we see ourselves in the mirror as all alone, we start to own a lot of this filth that gets washed over ourselves, and that says about ourselves and about our fellow brothers and, brothers and sisters in Christ, and that drastically distorts the image that we see in the mirror. But thank God, although the mirror on the wall says you're all alone, God says you are never alone. God says you are never alone. For one of my favorite verses that Derek used as well is uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus says the following, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is such an awesome verse. In that verse, we have the supremacy of Christ. We have the mission of the church to go make disciples. We have the holy ordinance of baptism. We have Jesus' command to not only teach our favorite little parts of the Bible, but the entirety of the scriptures. And we have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at the end, we have this awesome part that Matthew ends with, that and surely, surely I will be with you always. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, literally, there is never a time where God is not with us. Moreover, through the eyes of God, your true identity is found within the family of God. You know, according to the New Testament, it is a contradiction to say you are both a Christian, and, but to not have anything to do with the family of God. A lone ranger Christian would have been totally foreign to the early church. It would have been as foreign as an evangelical today saying, you know what, I don't really have any use for the Bible. I don't really think it's relevant to my life. For an early Christian to say, you know what, I don't really have any use for you guys. I can do this myself. It's just me and Jesus. And it might be new news to some of you, but they didn't even have Bibles in the early church. They didn't exist yet. You know what they had? They had each other. That's what they had. They had each other. But unfortunately, our English Bibles actually does us no favor in this regard in emphasizing the church family over the individual in many passages. Uh, let's look at a few up here to show you what I'm talking about. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. It says, and I want you to pay attention to the this, to this second person pronoun, you. But you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Now in the Greek, that word you is very clearly in the second person plural. However, there's no way to differentiate this in English. 
They, we just say you. And since we're Americans, we tend to just read this as everything is just speaking to me, not to all of us. So again, in 1 Peter, the next verse, 1 Peter 5 through 10, again, all of these would be in the second, plural, uh, second person plural in the Greek, and it would read like this. And after you all have suffered for a little while, wow, isn't that something, thinking about suffering within community. So often we think we suffer all by ourselves. That would be a foreign idea to Christians. We bear each other burdens. And after you all have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you all to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you all. That's the way it reads in the Greek, but you know, that's not proper English. So, you know, here's what I think. I think that you know what I think is wrong with our English translation is that there's no, there's no uh, country folk on the Bible committees. I mean, seriously, I think if Peterson can get away with the message version, we should be able to do the NLCV, the New Living Country version. I really think it would sell. You know, in the places where Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, we could just change that to hee-haw, y'all. I mean, it would seriously be more exegetically sophisticated than the current English translations, because at least we would know they're talking to more than one person. And I mean, I think we should just throw in a couple big old John Deere combines and the parables too. I mean, they're mostly about agriculture anyway. Could have Jesus at the wheel, the sons of thunder riding shotgun. I really think that would preach, I really do. So from the NLCV, the New Living Country version, here's how 1 John 2 through 20, 2, 20 through 21 should read. But you all have been appointed by the Holy One, and all of you all have knowledge. That sounds so country cool. You all have knowledge. I write to you all, not because you all do not know the truth, but because you all know it. And you all know that no lie comes from the truth. That's good. Okay. I hope it is becoming clear that the Bible was not written for me. It was not written for you in the singular. It was written for us. It was written for we all, okay? And that is one reason why you will never find bride, plural, anywhere in the Bible. When God talks about his bride as Israel in the Old Testament, it's always in the singular. And the same with Jesus when he talks about he's coming back for his bride one day, in the singular. Why? Because Jesus isn't coming back for individuals. He's coming back for his church, and he expects us to be united as one spiritual bride for him. You know, when anthropologists, when they have studied all the world religions throughout all the time, there is always one thing that they find is distinct in Christianity. Really only one thing. They've never found in any other religion all throughout time. And it's going to surprise you what it is. Fictive kinship. It's this idea that through the blood of Christ, different ethnicities, people of different socioeconomic statuses, even people that have been traditional ethnic enemies had been invited into one family like blood kin and actually would treat each other like blood kin, money, suffering with them, whatever they need. Anthropologists have never seen such extravagant love in any other religion that's ever been discovered on the face of the earth. And definitely in no God who embodies this kind of love for us. And we shouldn't be shocked by hearing this because Jesus says that this would be the one mark 
that the world would know that he was the real deal, the Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Let's look at John 17, verses 22 through 23 together. The glory that, this is Jesus talking to his heavenly Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see that? That's how the world's gonna know that Jesus is who he says he is, by our oneness, by our unity, for our love for one another. Our togetherness is what makes us both salty and a light to the world. Consequently, through the eyes of God, we find our true identity in Christ and through his church alone. We can push all, other, all the other mirrors aside. Now let's be God's men together forever. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.